This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Hornswood. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've made some exciting new changes to our mead range, and in particular, our Yorkshire mead. So what we've done is we've completely rebranded, relabeled, and we've also added a couple of new flavours. Now, before I tell you about the new flavours, I want to tell you a little bit about the mead production, because this stuff is really something special. It's made at a micro meadery just on the outskirts of York, and it's run by a fellow called Pete Allenson, and this guy does everything himself. He keeps the bees, he sustainably harvests the honey from his own bees, he then ferments the honey to make the mead, he bottles the mead, he labels the mead, he sends it out to us, I mean this guy does everything and, and mead is what he does and that's part of why I think this stuff is so amazing because it has such a short journey from production to bottling to end user um, and I think it really is a special product. So we have our three traditional ones that you might have seen on the website before which are mead of Serenos, our mead of Brigid and our mead of Morrigan. The Morrigan is an elderberry, the Serenos is a heather honey and the mead of Brigid is a traditional. Now on top of that, what we've done is we've added a spice mead, which is Surtur's mead. We have Loki's Curse, which is a pineapple and coconut mead. And then we also have Tia's Sacrifice, which is a whiskey and cherry mead. And I mean, that stuff is absolutely beautiful. All these meads are available in 75 cl bottles and a 25 cl bottle, so you can sort of pick your size. On the website, we also pair it in a gift set where you get a 25 cl bottle and a small drinking horn. Perfect for gifting or a little treat for yourself even. Even if you don't like mead, just it's worth going and looking at this stuff just for the artwork and for the bottles. Saxon Storyteller has done the artwork and I mean, he's absolutely nailed it with these. The, the labels look beautiful and I'm really proud of it. I'm sure you can tell. So just pop over to the website, hornsofodin.com. You get 10% off for listening to the show with the discount code HORNS10. So you should pop that in at checkout so you're going to get 10% off your order, Horns 10, and honestly, just try this stuff out. It really is, I think, the best mead available. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Naughty Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, corner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. All right, so today we have a really exciting lineup of guests. We have, first of all, uh, historian of religion Rune Janu Rasmussen, also known as uh, the guy behind the Nordic Animism channel. Uh, that you can find on, well, all the major platforms and YouTube, of course. And then we have Nena Era, uh, a resident philosopher. And we have Jonas Lorenzen from Nibala as well. And today we're going to talk about Runa's project on uh, the White Raven, his so-called Raven project, and we are going to hear what Runa has to say about um, what it is about in general, and then we're going to hear um, the thoughts uh, that uh, Jonas and Nenna have on the subject as well. So welcome, everyone. This is going to be very exciting, and I hope we can keep, you know, order in that's, that's <laughs> what I, That's exactly what I was thinking. I think for everybody listening, Bear with us because, you know, there's a few people here and it's the first time we've had so many on. So we'll try and uh, keep it as cordial as possible. Uh, welcome whoever wants to go first. Runa, you, you were up first. Uh, how are you doing? I'm just fine. I'm just fine. I'm, um, I'm actually at, a, at an island at the Aquitaine coast, 
uh, no less. So it was. I'm, I'm sorry for all the trouble in setting up my uh, my internet connection and everything, but now I'm here. So <laughs> cool. So you're you're all the way in in southern France. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. My my partner's family has a, a summer house actually on uh, on on a little island down here. So so, but it it sounds a little bit better than it is right now. The weather <laughs> is not absolutely stunning, uh, but when when it's when it's nice, then it's like a good good summer in Denmark. Um, so and it, I think it's going to be like that again soon. So. Nice. I'm always really jealous of people who. Who marry people who have second homes in really cool places? <laughs> I'm always like, why did I do that? Why can I? Why did I know somebody who has like a second house somewhere where I can get cheap holidays? <laughs> no, I had to marry for love, didn't I? Not money. No. Jonas, you are currently finishing the album off, I think. Yeah, I'm in uh, uh, the biggest, I think it's the biggest inland island of, well, perhaps it's the biggest inland island of all of uh, Europe, actually. Um, it's just outside Bergen, or inside, because it's, you know, an inland island, so it's not out as well. Anyways, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful studio here, and Shell um, uh who has sort of joined Nibala in, in, in some way, or has become a, a an invaluable uh, asset to Nibala, or however you want to call it. Uh, him and I, we are working really tightly on, on trying to, to finish up the record now, which is going to come out next year. I uh, can't say exactly when, but uh, next year. So we are just finishing it up now because, it, as some of you may know, it takes uh, an unseen amount of time to, to, to prepare everything. So the record has to be done in August. So this is like the week where it has to be done. So uh, I mean, it's a beautiful place. Um, mountains around uh, a lake, uh, an old stable that has been converted into a studio, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. I'm sure you'll be back on to promote it then as well. Yeah, def. Yeah, I would. I would love to. Absolutely. Um, sure. Sometimes, sometimes in the beginning of next year would make sense. Uh, That's when the video is coming out as well, mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that would that would yeah. be awesome. Yeah, maybe I should build a studio somewhere around here, and like that—that that could be pretty cool. Yeah, I've got enough things there. to do. <laughs> you don't need any more projects. I guess not. <laughs> uh, Nena, you've been also traveling, doing wonderful things. You were meant to be traveling today, but you put it off, I believe. Yes. Oh, yeah. I've been on the craziest sailing expedition in a offshore boat that is built by my mate and uh, hand-built. And it's the closest to a Viking ship that we have today. So I've been very close to the water and uh, just kind of floating around uh, through the log area where I am. And wow. I'm right now in uh, Rickard's house, whose boat it is. And uh, he's himself a Viking. So I'm surrounded by Viking literature. <laughs> <laughs> so, and yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like in the wild at the moment. And yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And this place has so much history as well. So nice. I feel like we, we just got three guests on to make us jealous there, Mateus. They're all doing <laughs> such cool stuff. <laughs> I, I must admit, I'm very jealous about all the water that you guys have around you. Um, yeah. I mean, currently we have sort of like a, a, a nice dense uh, blanket of uh, California wildfire smoke all over the place. <laughs> So, oh, God. oh damn have they been sort of going on continuously for like 
the longest time because I, I remember not that long ago there was fires, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a thing. <laughs> it's, it's a thing. I, I'm pretty sure like the Western America is constantly burning at this point. So oh, um, I mean, and I guess that's 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 the awkward segue into uh, talking a little bit about Runa's project because I mean the the Raven project is very much centered around environmentalism as well, right, Runa? Totally, and I mean. Uh, I, I, you know, when when I first heard that California was uh, burning, I was uh, it was this funny way of oh my god, that is so apocalyptic. Yet it's also it's better that that's California than it's Siberia because nobody gives a flip if it's in Siberia. But in California, some very very influential and powerful people who owns little stuff like Amazon or Facebook, they, they can actually experience it outside their windows. Okay. And that's a rather important little thing that's the side effect of it. So, um, uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Something gets done <laughs> when it affects the rich people. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly. <laughs> so, funnily enough, things happen and don't they? It's, uh, it's, it's a weird coincidence, I guess. Yeah. So, Runa, do you want to tell us a little bit about the project, what it is, uh, yeah. and your ideas? Yeah, let me uh, let me just try to jam a little bit around it uh, <laughs> here. Uh, as some of you maybe noticed, I have my uh, my uh, cool little pressy presentation here. I don't think I'm going to go through all of it because I think it's probably gonna, going to be too much. Uh, but um, but I'm just going to sort of yeah try to jam jam around it a little bit and and, and see how far i get yeah the raven project <laughs> um well it was it it, it, it was actually it was, it was ideas that were that were with me for quite a while i i started being interested in that thing about uh sort of the the mixing between bird shape and human face in archaeology and um, I noticed that it that this particular idea seems similar to uh, specific raven totemisms that are there in in the west coast of North America, where there there are these uh, cultures that are very uh, focused on uh, raven or the raven plays a very important role to them. Uh, and I couldn't help noticing that this 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 idea, for instance, that there is a a raven kind of looking out of the the body of a fibulae like and there's a there's a human face inside it that's sort of looking out of the back of a raven and then i i sort of pursued that thought and i had all kinds of crazy idea you probably remember matthias that at some point like years ago i told you yeah and then i'm gonna i'm gonna like uh, travel up the west coast of, coast of america and and meet the kukwakawaki and the Klingit and kind of uh talk to them about raven totemism that didn't happen or it hasn't <laughs> happened yet it might still happen one day hey, um, we could we could always uh, take a road trip like uh, i'm down yeah so my 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 long standing idea was that i try that i wanted to use this this human bird mixed motif to sort of reinvent or make a new version of the raven flag and the raven flag is a thing that's known from viking age chronicles and sagas it's mentioned in a couple of places in relation to specific battles that specific viking armies had this raven flag uh, and I, I thought okay uh, uh, that there might be these sort of totemic aspects to it and that is something that we can dialogue with from a contemporary 
positioning and then bring out meanings in the symbol that are a little bit more relevant for contemporary people than we're going to murder all of you and the ravens are going to eat your corpses, <laughs> which is not a particularly useful, useful symbolism in our day and age. So anyway, I, um, I kind of... Uh, um, uh, yes, started looking at at raven symbolism or a- actually bird symbolism, and um, I think some of the uh, some of the bird symbolism that that goes uh, all the way back to like the the um, uh, the Bronze Age uh, in Scandinavia. It's difficult to see what kind of birds it is, and it's often it's very very difficult when you look at ancient figurations of animals or birds or basically whatever. It's difficult to see uh, to become species specific. But there are cases where it's fairly clear that that these uh, some of these figures are ravens. For instance, the sometimes called Odin from from Lyra, this uh, little figure found on Sealand. There are birds sitting at the chair with pointy beaks. So, uh, and these ones are particularly the ones that I'm, I ended up being inspired in, in, in the design of the raven flag. Uh, and, and during this time where I was thinking about these and sort of also picking up images, uh, I was also kind of working, drawing myself on, on making, making an actual design. And I ended up having a pretty finished design that was ugly ass <laughs> and then i gave it to uh to some uh, designers and uh, we came up with the final raven flag now kind of the the scholarship that i did on it was sort of focused on a very very long trajectory of uh bird imagery in northern europe and i was uh, what i was basically interested in was the way that raven as a relation as a perhaps uh, ancestor figure in association with the god Odin. Odin is a, typically an ancestor figure, right? In many, from many Germanic speaking peoples. Um, and since Odin as a figure has so many similarities with the uh, North American raven figure, like the North American raven, he's a trickster a creator, a shaman, and an ancestor. Exactly those four motifs also go into Odin. The North American raven, by the way, is also sometimes imaged as uh, anthropomorph, is a human-shaped being that becomes a raven when it puts on its mask, right? And Odin has two ravens called Hugin and Munin, like mind and memory is often translated into. And this almost seems like literally imaged in these fibulae that have a human face looking out inside uh, the bird body as if the the bird is an embodiment of the mind of of, of a human mind so in, so so there there were these sort of similarities that I was that I was working with and that I wanted to bring out then I found a couple of British scholars who were interested in the raven as a symbol of our time. They actually proposed that instead of using the term Anthropocene, we should call our time uh, or our age the raven scene because the raven symbolizes both humanity in, in or the raven trickster symbolizes humanity both in its sort of egoism and its consumerism and and gluttony and but also in its its creativity and its its uh, adaptability and its genius to sort of um adapt into new uh, new situations 
situations such as uh, as one where California is burning and we are actually entering now uh, a Ragnarokian uh, period in our age where things are going to collapse and it's going to uh, result in immense human suffering. And so the raven, uh, according to these scholars, Patricia and Thomas Thornton, could be seen as a symbol of this age and of our human coping with it. So since this raven image with the, with the human uh, face inside the bird in itself symbolizes, like on a very surface level, connection between humanity and, well, nature or the bird, which is what totemism is. Totemism is the idea that we build, and uh, I don't want to use the word identity, but we build a feeling of social coherence through connection, relatedness to specific others in the landscape that we, that we inhabit. So what we understand as identity, that's like we're looking into ourselves and we, we think, okay, so I have a blood or a race or a culture or something like that. And it's, it's, it's an essence inside. And we define a, a community through that. But totemism looks out at the human being and say, okay, so we are the ones that are uh, related to bear or we are the ones who are related to seal or we are the ones who are related to raven or eagle and so on so um so yeah this this was sort of i don't know now i just kind of rambled around in it a little <laughs> bit but that was sort of my, my 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 thinking for sort of trying to uh think reintroducing the raven flag uh and part of the 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 story behind this is that the, the raven as a related relation in in southern scandinavia perhaps throughout scandinavia had been very strongly demonized they they label raven the apostle of satan you know it's kind of radical um and and there was this uh so a being that had, or um, an animal a bird that has been, had been very important had then become very strongly demonized and very strongly rejected so in Past times, uh, there had been these different and changing uh, kind of connectedness to Raven. And uh, one particular uh, point in Danish history, something particular happens, and that is that Valdemar the Great had a big battle where Ravens came and signaled the battle, the, the victory for him, like it happened in the Viking Age. And then his son, uh, Valdemar the Conqueror, he went on a crusade to Estonia and uh, killed some poor, poor people for not being Christians. And at, at, the bat, at one battle where he did that, what came down from the sky and gave him victory was not the raven anymore. Apparently, that symbol had become uh, dated <laughs> at, that, at that crusade. What came down was the Danish flag, the, the Danibor. Which so, is, which is, by the way, the uh, also the original Crusader flag, which is yeah. an important detail to consider in that regard. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's a Christianization of of that victory myth, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's not some, as cool, is it? Having a flag come down than a bunch of ravens. <laughs> I feel like ravens are so much more metal and just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and 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 I also see it as a kind of. I mean, some people like to say that the, the the Raven flag was the original Danish flag, and I don't really buy that. The the because 
know, the story of Valdemar the Great doesn't talk about any flag and and it, it's a little bit too good to be <laughs> true, you know. And also in, in the Viking Age where people had raven flags, they were not identified as national symbols in that way. They probably represented ruler families. And these ruler families, they had like bunch of warriors walking with them that came from all kinds of places. And by the way, also people who weren't necessarily Danes totally used the raven flag. For instance, uh, Norwegian, a new Norwegian earl in the Orkneys and, and stuff like that. So that, that's not really true. But the interesting thing is that the ravens, not the raven flag, but the ravens came down and gave Valdemar victory. And the, the, the Christian flag with the white cross came and gave his son uh, victory one generation later. And that cross is, of course, like from the animist perspective, uh, it sim symbolizes the longing for the transcendent, a longing out of this world where you could say that the, uh, the, the, raven, uh, the raven symbol uh, is in the sense the opposite. It's entanglement, it's connectedness with the world that's symbolized in this humanity inside the bird. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I had the um we've uh, I had the uh the flag designed and we started uh having it made and um and uh, worried quite a bit of uh whether it would be possible for bad people to uh to appropriate it. Uh it hasn't been a problem until now. Um and uh and then we uh well basically introduced it and uh and uh i think until now it has uh here's the design here's a couple of my kind of early sketches and the kind of stuff i was sitting and fiddling around with um and and yeah uh, the um the idea was basically to introduce the raven flag uh as a symbol of these eco-totemic kind of meanings where instead of symbolizing a, a very aggressive thing you know let's murder a lot of people uh, it symbolizes a kind of community that rests on a kind of connectedness to nature um which is also which is foundational in totemism and which is probably kind of a thing in these old uh, symbolisms where a human and uh, and uh, uh, yeah, a bird in this the raven is is connected in that way so mm -hmm. um so i sort of yeah introduced it and tried it to uh introduce it to different uh different people uh eco activists for instance and basically and I also contacted a lot of heathens around the world. I wasn't particularly structured about it, really. I was just like, oh, uh, uh, we gave it to some people, sometimes just because we felt that they were kind of spiritually connected to it, actually. Uh, and sometimes because, yeah. So uh, so we, we sort of introduced it and disseminated the idea of it and are still disseminating the idea of it. So, uh, and part of the point of this is not only that it looks cool and it would be cool if, you know, Extinction Rebellion started using it or whatever, but that uh, from the other side of, uh, of it, the, there's also the idea that uh, eco-activism has a, a problem and that is that it, it, it lacks history. When humans create uh, a future, 
we what we always do is that we talk about the past. We talk about the past in a certain way. And that way that we talk about the past is point into the present and it projects into the future. That's how we, we create a fucking future. But the problem with uh, eco-activism is that it doesn't do that. It doesn't talk, doesn't have a past. They're so history-less that, you know, Extinction Rebellion, I mean, sometimes you feel that they barely remember that, you know, Greenpeace activists were chaining themselves to oil rigs in the 1980s, and that was actually pretty crazy. Uh, and uh, it, it, contemporary eco-activism doesn't have a sense of uh, a past that is spoken, that is narrated, that is sung, man. In a way that that uh, uh, speaks into the present and projects the kind of future that we want, where everything doesn't collapse in one gigantic Ragnarokian uh, chaos. Right. That's such a good point. That's right. such a good point. Um, you could also say that you know quite often with these groups, these eco uh, groups, uh, environmentalist groups, um, there's also a blatant lack of understanding of culture um, in, in them, right? I mean, uh, that comes with the lack of, of, of historical knowledge too, right? What, why do you think that is? Like, where, how, how did that come about? <laughs> well, I think, I think, I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm, I think part of it has to do with the kind of, tension between religion and science that is sort of foundational to a lot of our culture where religion is understood as like this backwards mumbling thing where people are moving around in insane conspiracy theories talking about uh you know intelligent design or something like this you know uh where science is sort of the sensible opposition to this if you listen to greta thunberg she talks about science all the time and it's 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 good it's good she says just listen to science just listen to science however that also means now, now that's the reason that if I contacted Greta Thunberg and asked if she wanted to be an ambassador for Nordic animism, she'd probably say no because that would uh, that would uh, risk compromising her position as somebody who represents science, and mm. this is based on the Eurocentric sort of and in fact colonial idea that uh, religion is something that is in in opposition. To uh, to science or scholarship, academia, and I think this is and sensibility as well, right? Like religion is sort of like relegated to the realm of uh, of emotions and, yeah. and 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 being irrational, right? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and it, it it's the irrational, primitive, childish other to our rational, uh, adult, sensible. Uh, and competent handling of the world, and yeah, Richard, uh, Richard and, Dawkins' assholishness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, these guys. Uh, what, what are they called? These guys that are new atheists or something like that. The four horsemen of the counter-apocalypse. Exactly those guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they have absolutely no clue in the world what religion is about. I don't think they're scholars of religion. They're biologists and whatever, and they just they're just pulling out of their arse some sort of commonsensical ideas about religion. And it's they they do have a kind of a, a legit, legitimacy in the cultural struggle because they're fighting some pretty idiotic uh, Christian uh, fanaticism right. that is sort of deteriorating the knowledge of humanity in their spaces. And that's kind of a struggle that somebody has to fight. It's just a uh, just a 
damn shame it has to happen on on the this uh you know uh, very reductive understanding of what human religion is like i think i think what what you said there i mean this kind of uh new atheist uh, attitudes uh had its had its place and i don't think <laughs> to be honest i think it, it it has had its time now uh i think people are moving beyond that and they're understanding that there are there, there's more to it there's of course lots of people still who uh who jerk off to videos of christopher hitchens and so on this kind of thing and i i, I like christopher hitchens as well because he did he was a hammer to what exactly what you just uh what you just um uh, uh, explained and, and so was uh so was richard dawkins but i think you know, I think uh, I think at some point, you know, it, it, the sort of what you're talking about, you know, the, the complete sort of, uh, you know, lack of any kind of spirit that there is in, this, in these kind of arguments, you know, these this completely sort of, you know, stringent materialistic view. It, it I think it's just at some point, you know, my, my grandmother was a priest. She used to say that there are two main you know, forces in the world. There's the spiritual urge, and there's the sexual urge, and then there's the spiritual urge. And she was, a, she was a Christian, by the way, okay. priest, priest, a priest as Protestant church. So she didn't you see know. them as connected. <laughs> no, no, I know. I'm quite sure she did. To be honest, okay. I have I have more I have more quotes from her later on. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you also but, yeah. have to understand, uh, like what where Dawkins and Hitchens and all are coming from. They're also they. They're in opposition not to religion per se. I think they're much more in opposition to Christian religion because they actually haven't experienced any other forms of religion yeah. in that in that way, which are much more. Um, you know, I'm talking about pantheism. I'm talking about tribalism or shamanism or anything like that. So um, that's what they were trying to oppose. And I think it's very important to make that point to Probably. atheists as well because uh, their worldview is mechanistic materialism, which I mean, is dogmatic, you know, from their own point of view. There is no way to prove it, as there's no way to prove God uh, exists or not. So those are very sort of basic foundations we have to come to grips with first before we even talk about um, any of these, you know, idea idea movements. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, would, and I would say that this is one of the things where I think they, they, uh, they misunderstand religion. They project their notion of Christianity, which typically is something about dogmatism. They, they think about religion as something that's dogmatic. And, uh, and they think about something that, that's perhaps uh, uh, intolerant. Mm -hmm. Dogmatism and intolerance, you find that in Christianity, uh, certain kind of Christianity, and then they project that on religion as such. That's actually what I feel that they they do. Which is actually, just to 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 uh, kick a ball into the field here. That here in the U.S., when you say the word religion to a lot of people, that just means some Christian church. Yeah, like like <laughs> the, the idea that that you know. Uh, that religion is, is is a lot more than that is is almost uh, non-existing unless you're dealing with people who have you know studied the the subject for a very long time, right? Mm -hmm. So so that I think that tells you everything, right? And and it it, it is exactly what you say, uh, Nana, that uh, you, you like um, these these guys they're 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 projecting a certain idea of, of religion and what they're familiar with, right? And that's what they are rejecting in all of this. If they had been familiar with, you know, so many other ways of thinking about 
uh, the spiritual or the, the metaphysical, whatever you want to call it, uh, then then they might not be as hardline <laughs> as they are, right? Mm-hmm. That's something to take into consideration. But it's, it's, it's really funny because it's dogmatism that they're opposing yeah. by dogmatism. Exactly. <laughs> so it's a little bit silly in that way. They're like contradicting themselves. Yeah. Nena, Nena what was it? Uh, wasn't it Nietzsche who said something about a lot of these people who are these, you know, stringent materialists and so on? They are actually, you know, they are Christian without knowing it. That's the problem with them. You know, yeah. they're being extremely Christian in their critique of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like because they, they they're don't using have the, the Christian critique. Yeah. 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 But, but by the way, let me actually just return a little bit to your initial question, Matthias, uh, which is why don't they have a history, uh, the, the eco uh, activists? And I think, actually, I think. And I don't think we should go into it a lot because you've probably talked about it a lot on this podcast, but I actually also think part of it is uh, Nazism, (laughs) which was in its inception kind of related to these sort of van der Vogeln sort of nature uh, focused movements. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and and there is today such a thing as eco-fascism and uh, who associates the purity and protection of nature with the purity of a, a white race, for instance. And uh, and when I, I, for instance, I recently I had a bit of a, 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 an exchange with uh, Extinction Rebellion in Scandinavia who were, and they're super interested in my work and perhaps they're going to, I, I'm, perhaps I'm going to work with them somehow, but they are they are uh, thinking about this. You know, w- when we work with the past, you know, it's really important that we avoid leaning towards these sort of Heimat nostalgia sort of. Uh, and with the stuff that I'm working with, where there is uh, there's a lot of folklore, there's a lot of corn dolly deities and people dancing around maypoles and all that shit. You know, that, that it's it, uh, it it is easy for people to associate it with this sort of high mark nostalgia that has has some sort of leaning towards uh bad shit yeah no that's a that's a that's such a really good point Rune. um especially like i've said this before on the podcast like allowing uh nazis white supremacists and all these people to to co-opt our culture is basically you know under this pretense of like oh so this is this is how we preserve our culture but that's always the argument that they give right that's basically the the, the highway to destroying our culture because yeah. ultimately uh, and we we've, we've seen this with uh, all the you know go back to the late 19th century early 20th century there was so much thinking based in uh, nordic mythology and the history of northern europe um, in so many ways. And a lot of it was very far right, but there was also a fuck ton that was very far left and in many other directions. To keep that in mind, uh, philosophers like Nietzsche, the aforementioned Nietzsche, who uh, cast some of his ideas in context of, of uh, pre-Christian Germanic thinking, um, if nothing else, and sort of to to just relate it to it, but but nonetheless, the point is though that 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 all of that thinking, more or less, became tainted after um, the Nazi regime in Germany. Like it, it, it's it, it, so much of it has become untouchable yeah. in so many different ways, right? 
and and I mean that that is uh, that is something that can happen again. Hmm. Um, yeah, can I can I say something about this? Absolutely. Um, okay, so like firstly, like uh, I'm I'm a scholar in Heidegger and um, Arnines, uh, who's who's from Norway, who started the whole deep ecology movement. And Heidegger, who started the whole Heimat movement, very involved with the Nazis. Him himself, he wasn't particularly a Nazi. I mean, he, his ideas were used for the Nazi regime. It's all debatable. I don't want to get into that. But nonetheless, I personally do not think there is anything wrong with the whole idea of romanticizing a Heimat. Um, the problem is not so much the uh, yeah that kind of equism. The problem is the nationalism that is connected with it. And I think this is where uh, Luna, I want to just in, intersect with your with your whole Raven flag idea because you know I really respect your work and I think it's brilliant. Everything you spoke about um, is amazing. I mean, it's definitely genius. Um, and also connecting the Raven and the research that you've done is beautiful. But um, the flag as a symbol is, uh, firstly, I, I think it's an incredibly penetrative. Uh, idea, you know, and I know you know that, and we've spoken about this before, but to bring it out here, it's what is uh, symbolizing nationalities, tribalism, it's a medieval idea. It is, uh, in my opinion, a very um, Christian-based idea. It crystallizes um, movement, which is um, not, not in... Like when I look at it from an ecological point of view, and ecology is basically, as I do eco-philosophy, ecology is like the study of relationships and, and connections and how things interconnect. And you are doing that with the raven and the, and, the, um, uh, and, the, and the human, the human nature connection. But to put it in a flag is um, you're, you're building a sort of separatism between humans. So you're connecting nature and humans, but you're, you're creating a tribalism, uh, which is separatist and inherently, um, um, in a way, yeah, inherently uh, tribalistic um, in this nationalistic way, which is, which is, which has actually been the problem. And this is, in my opinion, the problem of the ecological crisis. So I would like to know what you think about that. Well, yeah, I probably have a lot of things to say about that. First, um, tribalism refers to a specific kind of human organization. And when people use the word tribalism, I'm always a little bit thinking, I wonder exactly what kind of human organization they're referring to. In, in anthropology, there's a specific kind of organization that's called a tribe. And it, it's something about the size and the leadership and stuff like that. Um, totemism does create distinct, distinguishable human uh, groups. It does. And that's, I, I agree that, that, uh, that uh, the... Um, like if I were, for instance, to uh, successfully create a global uh, sort of transnational raven clan, then that raven clan would perhaps be marked from Ole Mullerland's bear clan if he made that happen, right? And mm -hmm. and I don't think and I don't think that that is the same as tribalism. 
it, it is it it would be in that case a group creation. That's for sure. It's I'm not, I don't think I would call it tribalism. Uh, would it be some kind of federalism? I I don't know. I don't know actually. And and at at the point I am now, I'm basically thinking the eco totemic charge of the symbol as a kind of yeah almost anti identitarianism because it is a a reaching out of the of the human being instead of reaching in and that is not something that i have sort of but i, I but i i haven't created a a kind of a circumpolar raven state yet, yet. So, so it's not, yet. so it's not, <laughs> so, so uh, we haven't reached yeah. that state yet. So, uh, so mm. what I basically trying to do is to sort of introduce this connectedness. And I also realize that it, when you introduce something, then that something is also always going to be not something else. And since this is a sort of an idea of a, of a connectedness with, or, or a kinship group, actually, it's an idea of a kinship group that just includes nature in it, uh, mm-hmm. then, then uh, I, I would say there is the potential that one day that there will be uh raven clans that are perhaps in a in a distinction from eagle clans or whatever like you find it among the clinket haida in in north america uh you find these distinctions and um but but i so so uh, i kind of follow what you say however my intention and very much the way i've introduced it has been to say this is an open thing that can sort of symbolize community with nature uh, or, or kinship tie to nature for uh, basically all people and i also think with the flag i don't think that a flag necessarily makes something, for instance, nationalist or tribalists. Flags can be so many things in this world. Flags can be symbols that ships signal to each other with. Or they can they can sell mobile phones, or they can send little prayers up to an avatar of a Buddha in a Tibetan temple, or they can be carried over a field in France and uh, bring the blessing of a saint to the earth, or they can, uh, flags can be so many different things. And I don't think that the, the uh, kind of the form of a flag in a symbol in this way is more essentially uh, tribalist than, for instance, a Haida Klingit totem pole that uh, collects the uh, the crests and 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 totemic relations of specific people in 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 a line of of relating. I totally get it, but uh, at the same time, you know, you have Arnenes who came up with this. I mean, he didn't come up with this concept because he took it from the Buddhists, but uh, he talked. He, he's the first one to construct it in a Western context. He called it the spontaneous experience. Now, the spontaneous experience is when you go out in nature. When I'm out in the fjord sailing. There comes a moment where everything, you know, thought slows down and you have this experience of absolute presence and that you stop identifying with your tiny little self and yourself becomes the ocean or yourself becomes the mountain and you're part of it and you feel like you can expand with it or contract with it. 
And this kind of um, spontaneous experience is a prerequisite. And this is what Buddhism talks about as well. And uh, Indian religions practice of like how to be ecologically centered or, you know, I mean, psychologists will also, will also tell you, you have to be present. And when you have, uh, so th this is the whole point about the spontaneous experience. And he said that you have to have that in order to have any kind of deep sense of human nature connection. Now, when you put a symbol like a flag of a raven, you will, you will, and I know you're trying to get away from it, but you will identify a raven um, as a symbol of spirituality, which will take you away because it's pre-constructed. It, it's like, it's again in the same sort of spectrum of this whole uh, thing we're talking about with with um, with logos and brands like you're talking about. It's, it's all the same thing. We're coming up with flags and then logos and brands. And this is what's put us in this position because we are abstracting from the real world. So instead of experiencing the real world as it is, we are abstracting from it by, by working with symbols that are not connected to our geographical position and our tribe because we're living in this global contemporary world, right? Now, how do we, I think it's much more of a question, how do we actually get back to it? And you're saying that we have to somehow, um, you know, have this raven symbol which somebody, you know, sitting in perhaps, um, you know, Bangladesh has to have. And then you're, you're taking them away from that idea or the, the phenomenon of being there, um, if you know what I mean. So it's it's just, it, it's a bit difficult to really, to actually have it in, in, in practice, because it is, again, just a symbol. And this is my problem with it. Do you okay. not think uh, that people have always banded under symbols throughout all of history, whether it's now or a thousand years ago or 5,000 years ago. Surely humans have always kind of collected together under something. It's, it seems very human nature to kind of see something go, okay, we all identify with that. We all like that. Let's just use that. Even though <laughs> it feels like it's hard, it would be hard to ever separate ourselves from symbols yeah but the symbols have to have to be something that comes through you this is what i was talking about with the whole deeper ecology movement it has to be something you have to experience first rather than being pre-constructed but i'm struggling mm. oh, oh, oh surely somebody has to experience it first for it to then be passed on to but others it's kind of like i feel like it's a chicken or the egg kind of situation where well, somebody has it and then goes well, if Jason Jesus is the chicken, I guess. Um, <laughs> can, um, can, can I can I can I jump in here? Because now ahead. we have the we have the like when we were discussing this podcast before doing it, we, we had the situation of the. Uh, I think I said something like it's it's a bit like the beginning of a joke, you know, like a, a musician, a uh, anthropologist, a philosopher, a horn carver, and a. Uh, <laughs> mythologist specialist walks into a bar um type of thing uh and and this is exactly what i, I this i'm really i'm really i have to commend you nena for, for 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 saying these things and just going straight to the to the bone of it because it's important to 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 discuss these things uh openly and and freely and even sometimes even if it hurts a bit um uh, I feel, you know, uh, I, I will also start by saying that, you know, uh, I, uh, 
you know, I've in, really enjoyed and been directly inspired in my work, I will say, by, by Rune's uh, videos um, on, the, on the Nordic mythology uh, part, uh, the Sorry, the <laughs> Nordic animism channel. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, those, they are really thorough and deep and fucking amazing. I feel that sometimes a piece of art, in some sense, you know, if you focus too much on, on the art itself, that's what happens when, you know, people get totally sort of ecstatic about some artist or some, some, some star or whatever, you know. Uh, if you focus too much on the person and the art, you miss the glory. It's like, you know, in that Bruce Lee movie where he says, it's like a finger pointing to the moon. If you look at the finger, you miss all the heavenly glory in some sense. And this is, I think, where, uh, you know, a, a lot of my thoughts about your, your recent projects, uh, Rune, both the, the, the calendar and the, and, and, but especially the, the flag. I think um, what I've sometimes had a little bit of trouble of understanding is that, you know, because as an artist who works with, who works with like, you know, all of Nibala's first record and then the first EP is, is, is about sacred sexuality in some sense. You know, I, 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 I look into comparative religion. I look into these Nordic symbols. I've sort of dressed the whole art project in a Nordic vibe um, and, and looked into history together with Matthias to, to find the right sources and, and so on, to express ideas and, and emotions and feelings and so on. But beyond that, I'm not really doing anything. I, I, I put these things together and then I send them out into the world. And, you know, if they become, if it becomes pathologized somehow, if people take this music and they, you know, start, you know, beating people up for not having sacred sex anymore, <laughs> whatever it could be, you know. But we as artists, when we do this, we don't really have control over that. It's like when you send a child out into the world, you can't control what, this child is going to be you, you can try to you know you can't really to control how this child is going to meet the world and interact with the world so as, as an artist I have a little bit less responsibility when I just send something out because I've just been inspired by something or something has been channeled through me and I just bleh you know but when you are doing these things it seems like there's three things going on and correct me if I'm wrong you are in one sense a scholar using his history and all these different things, and, and, and your anthropological and your religious understanding from your academic work. Then you are also an artist, and then there's an activism element in it as well, meaning you're really trying to direct it towards something very specific. And that is totally cool with me, because I don't think, and, and then I think maybe, I don't want to put words in your mouth either, but I'm not, I don't think you're saying that this is already pathologized in some sense, but maybe no. the chance of it being pathologized and being, you know, uh, becoming a kind of sectarian movement or something like that is quite high when you are so directed. Does this all make sense somehow? And can we go from there? Yeah, there's quite a lot of questions yeah. here. Um, yes. First, with the uh, kind of Unio Mystica that you were talking about, uh, Nena, um, where I derive my inspiration for what I do, it comes very much from my kind of decades of work with uh, Afro-Brazilian religion. 
the way these people work is that they have developed incredibly effective tools to create sort of a reality bubble inside uh, modernity, rationalist modernity, where they can still have Thunder gods with hammers manifesting full power, literally being there, and so on and so forth. And it, I mean, if I was the dictator of the university, I think it would one of the first things I would do is I would prescribe a lot of the Nordic scholars a year of practice in Candomblé. Uh, but uh, the the um, I like the sound of that. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the idea uh, that what they do is very much about handling symbols in the way that they are creating counter-modernity. They're creating spaces that are alternative, alternate to uh, modernity. And the reason that these descendants of enslaved Africans have done this is that they are the people in the world who have experienced the most radical, genocidally atrocious uh, abuse from modernity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, what, what they, for instance, will do is that you have thunder god manifesting possessing a person in their cult that person is carrying a symbol that is a axe as kind of a little uh double-headed axe now that actual that symbol is it's a symbol in in a sense it's like santa claus wearing a white beard when the children sees him they know that it's santa claus when that symbol is yielded by the possessed dancer who's ma masking this deity then these symbols create perception and this perception is part of feeding the subjectivity it is an actual invocation of the deity that is the that is the the uh, the function of masks that is why there are masks in all culture. And, and this is also why I think why there are symbols in all culture and why, like Daniel said, that people always rally around symbols. And I don't see this in, in any kind of opposition to a, uh, an unio mystica or a presence of spirit or experiencing your, your, your place. So I, I definitely see this as a yielding of that symbol that will create relation uh, making. That's how I see it. And I, and I don't see it as in any kind of opposition to, I think we should add more symbols like that. The more symbols there are like that, the more probably Unium Mystica there would be, <laughs> I think probably in some kind of way, right? Then uh, now, when, when you talk about the fear of patholo pathologizing, uh, Jonas, I have freaked out myself about that, okay? No, I just want to say, uh, if I use the word fear of pathologizing, I, I didn't mean it. I, I mean, mean, there's no, there's the nothing in this world. There's nothing in this world that hasn't been pathologized no, or been no, corrupted no. at some point. It no. will happen. Your your Except your whole project is gonna become a fucking Nazi movement at some point if it's if it gets the <laughs> chance <laughs> to. No, what I'm saying, what I'm saying, what I'm saying. <laughs> my okay, point, then. My, no, no, I really, no, I really, I really mean this. Actually, I, and what I mean to say is, is actually this, uh, and this is very important. I think. I don't think that it, what I mean. Okay, it's not become a, it's not going to become a Nazi movement. But what I'm trying to say is that there is nothing in this world that has not become bullshit at some point. Like the cross you mentioned earlier with the flag, then all of a sudden it becomes a, a long Christian cross, and it's all about suffering and misery, and you're not good enough for this world, and you're bullshit. I mean, things I mean, are not the swastika. Know. The swastika is a great example of this, right? Yes. You know, just yeah. just how fucking sainted that symbol has become 
after uh, World War II. It is now only in at least the Western context associated with Nazism, right? Um, despite the fact that it had so many different uses just prior to that period. Exactly. It's like symbols of their own life in amongst themselves, as if they're a living thing and they change and alter depending on the time period, who's there, who's using it, what it gets used for. So it's like they never stay as a static thing and just mean one thing forever. And secondly, what the fuck is pathologizing? Somebody <laughs> please explain that one. So, because I can't be the only person who doesn't know what that word means. Well, pathologizing means, you know, pathology is a sickness, right? So if you pathologize something, then, it, you know, you're basically degrading its value in different ways, right? Okay. It becomes it. diseased. Yeah, it becomes diseased. I've got it now. I, <laughs> with, we could also say appropriation or whatever, like that people who want something else with it, take, take it over and do something with it. Mm -hmm. I've like I've totally obsessed about that, and I've done so much to avoid it. And I think until now, I have successfully avoided it, at, at least from what I can see. Um, but uh, because I've I, I've done a lot about it, I think I think that when you create something and you send it into the world, if you do like this, you make some something and then you just send it out there, then it can go wherever the flip somebody want to take it, pretty much. But I think that the, the process of giving something shape and actually rearing that child, that is something that you can very much do. And this is something that I am very much doing with this, uh, with this, uh, with this symbol and others. And I'm not quite sure that I agree with you that everything turns to Nazism. Uh, <laughs> because everything is, a, everything is a quite big thing. Uh, so it's a quite big statement. <laughs> uh, but um, some things just forget maybe well. a lot of stuff does. I don't know. But I also think <laughs> that the, the age that we're in right now, we live in an age where the attention of or the kind of the perspectives of uh, a lot of your descendants, for instance, but a lot of people around the uh, planet is turning towards what you might call Earth-focused religions. And they're turning mm. with massive intensity uh, and in this work i think that the only the only way that that can be done in in a truly uh effective way in a truly effective way is if it is done um with this sort of counter modern trickster spirit that is very playful and and i i actually like what, what, what these things that i'm doing they totally have an aspect of playfulness some of them more than others the uh the yule buck uh uh that are that i've been arranging now the yule buck parades in copenhagen have been arranging a couple of years uh is super playful thing but it's also resting on the idea at that that if we relate to our geographic space with traditional knowledge practices, then uh, then we are shaping our deep perceptions of relatedness. And I think that that when, um, like, if you talk about if you talk about ideologies and thought structures, then I think I would agree with you. They probably all turn to shite somehow. But if you talk about practices, then it's a very, very different thing and a very different being. They don't all 
turn bad like that. Practices are somehow a different being and they are dynamic and they can renew themselves in a surprising way or they can be a vehicle for incredible uh, reservoirs of knowledge that are, uh, are transmitted through uh, centuries, perhaps even millennia. Uh, like I, That's the feeling that I've got from seeing the Yoruba descendants uh, that still practice ancient Yoruba religion in contemporary Brazil, like that, that they, they, they don't talk a lot about stuff. They don't have much of an ideology. They don't have much of a mythology. Not really. There is some, but they don't, doesn't really play a role. The only thing they have is practice and they just practice, 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 practice. It's all about relating it's all about relation and, and uh, handling uh, materiality. It's, it's trance, drumming, butchering animals, possessing, building deities into physical material objects. That's the only thing they do. And if you ask them stuff, but imagine being an anthropologist, you're supposed to get knowledge, and you ask people, so why are you putting leaves on top of that drum before we play? And the guy looks at you and says, oh, that's very important in our ancient rituals. That's his answer. You know, the, the, the people never answer questions, and they tell you directly, you, don't, you shouldn't answer these que ask these questions all the time. If you're sitting down and looking at somebody doing something without asking, somebody, a priestess will come, come over to you and tell you, Oh, that's good, my son. Now you're doing it in the right way. Now you shut up with all those those uh, stupid questions, and you're just learning by watching. And uh, and I think that that uh, that that this is this is basically what inspires me to try to move from talking, thinking, writing, reflecting space, and into moving, dancing, drumming, swinging a flag, mm -hmm. celebrating deity at a specific date, date space. This is fucking yeah. awesome. This yeah. Is, this is fucking awesome. Um, uh, just historically, um, those are some of the realizations that in the study of Nordic religions and mythology, uh, some scholars have had lately that, hey, wait, maybe these people didn't give much of a fuck about like cosmos and all of those things. And um, when we read Snorri Sturluson's Edda, uh, the best, uh, the most comparable other literature that we find in in uh, Europe um, uh, from different time periods uh, is uh, missionary um, strategies for deconstructing non-Christian religion. Um, it's the typical uh, style of a question-answer situation. You start asking like, who's who's the ruler of the universe? And and some some Laplander is going to be like I'll fucking know, <laughs> right? Uh, because they don't. That's not really important in uh, in that uh, in their mind. Um, that's not important to that religion. Um, the idea that you know cosmos and what gods are there and where does the wind come from and how was the sun created? All that stuff. That's all Christian shit. Um, <laughs> largely, um, you of course find similar modes of thinking in uh, the Near East, um, and, and that's because you know a lot of the Christian thinking comes from there. Um, uh, but it's uh, it's not something that you necessarily find in indigenous uh, religions, mm. and that's that's mm. really the the important thing to to, to keep in mind here that um, that nowadays uh, uh, those of us who live here in this uh, 
Western uh, empire of nothing. Um, we, 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 <laughs> we're very much, you know, just chained to our little screens, working with superstructures and ideology about the world, um, more than praxis and more than feeling and experience and relating to the world in general. Um, that's, that's, a, that's sort of like a, 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 you know, a side effect of, of that you know, Christian ideology that we, we have been impressed with for the last uh, at least 1500 years, for some 2000 years, right? So I think uh, it's so beautiful, like what you both are saying. And, and that's also actually what my first argument with you was, Huna, because it was about this whole thing about focusing too much on the ideology and focusing too much and, and uh, on the symbol rather than the actual practice. And it, it makes me really happy to say that that's what you're trying to convey with it, because that's the only thing that makes sense, because that, that, that is the upside down way of thinking about this, this is what modernity has done. We're living in ideological bubbles. And that's the problem with it, because when you're out in nature, when you're actually relating to the world, uh, which I have been doing, there's not much thinking going on in my head. There's only relating and there's only practice mm -hmm. all the time. And that, that's actually the way to do it. I mean, if you really want to connect and, and if there is a symbol that can help you with that, whatever whatever works, you know. And I, I do believe that the way you're doing it is how people have done it. And it's, it's in, in the past to make very forceful and penetrative, very masculine uh, ways of changing people's perception. So in that sense, it does make sense what you're doing. And uh, but I mean, of course, I'm coming from a very feminine perspective as well. I mean, I really hate putting in that feminine masculine context, but at the same time, you you have the both both sort of sides playing together, and you have to have that balance of understanding what you're doing rather than getting lost in the culture, or the counterculture, or whatever you're trying to create. Mm. So I think I think the design part of it is is very important, though. I think that it has to look good. To do to do the purpose because I think you could Runa could go out and practice and practice and practice, but if it looks like shit, it, people just won't get behind it. Yeah, um, and that's just I think how how we are as people. It has to look sure. visually very nice, and then people will go, okay, that looks good. What does it mean? And then kind of go. So I think, like you say, it has to have that balance of aesthetic and at least then taking the time to get something really good and then practice. I totally agree with that. It there needs to be the need to, and 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 that counts for that counts for anything uh, 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 that that there needs to be a direct appeal. Uh, there needs to be kind of a uh, if, if if part of the huge problem with the kind of anthropology I come come from is that it's all about relationalism and relation, but the language <laughs> that they speak in is extremely unrelated relational in the fact that nobody understands a word they're saying uh, mm -hmm. and you have to bring like it's i think it is inherent to the relation project and therefore to animism that you need to bring stuff to people's place and that also really and i think that also makes stuff precarious it's difficult to handle something that you that you want to bring to the point where where it actually reaches people like I, I worked on this calendar project and uh and um it was it, it was surprisingly difficult that there was a lot of kind of choices i had to make one of the choices was that i said okay 
I'm not going to go with the lunar months, which is this beautiful pre-Christian system where, where you have yeah, lunar months that are fixed in relation to the sun. Beautiful system. But I just ended up thinking people are never going to even start using it. Mm. I mean, how, how many of you would have the faintest idea where we are in relation to the moon today you know it's 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 uh, it's it's just not going to happen and uh, and then i i uh, i decided against it and i tried to coin my naming of the months with later traditions that were focused in 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 a solar calendar that look more like our own and and th- these are the kind of choices that that are I'm sort of thinking, okay, I need to, I need to, I need to make something that people can actually relate to because, uh, because if, 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 if it, if not, then it becomes, um, a practice of nerdship. And uh, I've done that a lot <laughs> already, <laughs> and it doesn't work. It's such a good point, Runa, because, you know, the, the, one of the things that people have criticized about the calendar, those nerds, right? And like reconstructionist heathens sitting over in a corner somewhere being like, oh, <laughs> you didn't use the lunar cycle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be entertaining as well, because most people aren't going to want to pick it up because they may not understand it or it might not grab their attention. So you have to make it, entertaining like we we tried to do with the show because we just mm. spoke facts for three hours then we might just get told <laughs> it's boring and people turn off after 20 minutes and you don't get anywhere oh, um, or if i or if i was to say you know i'm gonna make this album but it's going to be only milk pails and uh you know <laughs> rocks cracking <laughs> together to, you know. hey, I'd, I'd listen to that <laughs> i don't think it's or it's gonna be it's but gonna you're be, nerd. Uh, so like Imagine if you if you did an album that was exactly like, uh, or not exactly, but as precise as possible as as um, uh, Viking Age recitation would have sounded. Now, Einar Selvig, didn't he come pretty close to that? And that was actually amazing to listen to. But I don't think he sang the whole of the uh, the Verlusbau in his... Oh, he uh, did not. It, no, it was he, just a selection. Have, and the yeah. reason is that in... The Iron Age and the Viking Age, people didn't have screens, so they were actually it was actually entertaining for them mm-hmm. to listen to a very, 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 very long song <laughs> that was go droning on in the same tonality with a little liar. Or uh, yeah, people do not have the attention. Of course, no, Abs- absolutely not. Um, Jonas, one thing I wanted to to ask was, I guess you could always have the the debate of whether even if even if runes flag in the future is used for nefarious reasons surely the debate would be does the good that it does before that outweigh the bad that comes after like you can never stop something maybe being used for bad um so does that mean we just shouldn't try or shouldn't do things because it may be used for bad no that's i would say that's that was exactly my point earlier when i said to Runa, we are just we are just talking about this right now. We are talking mm-hmm. about all the the pros and cons, and and you know we are discussing. I I think what we can boil it down to is in a sense is that is that we're discussing how do we get to to a point where where people do have that you know a stronger connection to nature, a stronger connection to themselves. Because and that's why I wanted Nana and. And Rune also to talk a little bit more about animism, panpsychism, these different ideas about 
that there really isn't any difference really between us and nature, right? I mean, the whole sort of human nature connection is in some sense a misnomer because there's not a connection between an individual human and an individual nature. It, it, it is, there's no separation really between, at least not in my mind. Um, so, so, so my answer would be uh, no. I think Bruno should go full on, uh, you know, with it, and I think we should go full on. We should do all kinds of things, and we should not be afraid of them becoming uh, uh, used for bad things. We we need we can only do what we can do and try to, you know, <laughs> I think do something. The, I think know. the the more people get into something, the more you're going to have some people who who use it their way or maybe use it in a negative, but then does that negate the, what majority of people do or the good that it does in that side and that it tries to at least do I something? I think the no. important thing, sorry, like when we talk about this thing, I, I think the, 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 the gay pride flag uh, or you know, the rainbow flag uh, is a super awesome example uh, because, yeah, you can probably find some people who are sitting in some corner corner and saying, "Yeah, that has destroyed the gay community, and it has uh, it is uh, has fallen down for patriarchy and blah 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 blah." Of course, you can find people who think that they're always there, but think about the good it has done. the The fact that there is that one symbol that that uh, can be made used in so many ways. It's just those colors. I've seen I've seen the the stock market building in Copenhagen uh, hoisting the gay flag. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? They just need to take that one that one symbol, use it, and then they are they are affirming and focalizing in their practice of this symbol uh, a huge method and the legitimizing uh, uh, their that movement and making uh, manifesting in practice a cultural change. It is an incredible cultural change that our culture has gone through in the last 20, 30 years when it comes to uh, uh, inclusivity towards uh, non, uh, non-normative sexualities, non-normative uh, uh, gender constructions. And I think that the, the fact that there are practices are key in that. They have the gay pride parade It's a ritual. It's not some somebody going blah, blah, blah. There's probably a lot of people going blah, blah, blah. But it's a ritual. And people can participate in it. People just go out and participate in it. Whether they're gay or not, they're just celebrating the uh, the plurality of humanity and, uh, and uh, using that flag. I think that the impact of those symbols, the parades, the gay pride day in the places where they have that, the flag the positive impact of those symbols far outweighs that of course you can find some angry people in some corner who will say that it destroyed everything. What about what about the fact that the stock exchange in Copenhagen literally trades in burning the rainforest? And, and oh, that's fuck. a different issue. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and I think it's uh, that is a very leg- legitimate, and we should consider burning them to the ground. Yes, totally. Uh, and we'll do that the next time together. Next time you come to Copenhagen, and we'll hoist, hoist the raven flag on the ruins. Yes, <laughs> deal, deal. But, uh, but 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 it doesn't change the fact. It doesn't change the fact that that uh, that you can also s- s- say this about politicians that we don't like. Uh, ultranationalist politicians have taken in. Uh, 
homosexualities. This is also actually a victory for the acceptance of uh, of these other kinds of uh, sexuality. That's I think, point, even yeah. though I don't like these politicians, maybe maybe like you know, burning things to the ground is not where I want to start with this. <laughs> We'll archive that together with the, the, the circumpolar <laughs> raven state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like, yeah, yeah, no. This, this is going in a completely different direction than I thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I suppose, I suppose, I suppose, Daniel, uh, also to 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 pick up on it again. Um, you remember the last time I was on, I think it was the last time I was on, I was on, I, I told the story about the Buddhist monk, mm -hmm. the Zen master, right? And he always says, let's see, right? Every time something happens in the village, whether, you know, whatever the boy happens to the boy, it's centered around the boy. He always says, let's see, you know, and the, it's like kind of my mantra in some sense. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean we should become apathetic and not do things. It just means we should try not to judge too much in some sense. You know, whether it's good or bad or all these kind of things. We just have to sort of go for what we're feeling or what we were sort of being inspired to do. And 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 things are going to go up and down and all around and so on. And that's kind of why I wanted to sort of get a little bit away from this conversation now that it's sort of getting a little bit political or or whatever but i really wanted uh, uh runa and uh, nena to get into um a little bit this talk and, and this is also because with runa when you were on the last time you kind of called nena out really briefly but you kind of oh, yeah. did uh, I, I, in a good not in a bad way or a good way but you said something like what I'm doing is Nordic animism, not like this pan-psychism thing. That's what sort of philosophers like Nena Gupta and so on, or, or, or Nena Era, or whatever. Oh shit, was, yeah, I, is, is was I dismissive? You, I didn't mean No, you just, you, just said, you just said that's their tip. That's not what I Okay. Do. So yeah. I thought, so, you know, you weren't dismissive. I didn't, I didn't sense it as that, but I just thought, hey, wow, that'd be super cool to have these two guys talk about the different ways of, of, of looking at uh, panpsychism, animism, these kind of ideas. Because what we're doing, like I said earlier, right now is just intellectually masturbating, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm gay. I'm gay. But uh, the question is like, uh, where to start? Where to start, yeah. yeah. Like, but I can, I, I can say something, like, like, and I can make a segue for us. So, um, so like my, my supervisor, uh, who is the guy from Oslo University who who is basically the guy who arranges for the head of philosophy he wrote this he in pa, pa, he wrote pan animism is panpsychism in practice so um it's a very beautiful way to start it because panpsychism firstly first and foremost it is a philosophical metaphysical or ontological concept that everything um, I mean, it, of course, people have different opinions and views on like exactly what everything is, but all objects that are living uh, or non-living, in, in in my experience, have some kind of life force in them. So that if they're imbued with life, uh, and they are life, so that's sort of the metaphysical concept of it. I don't want to get too deep into it, but it, it's very much what animism is also saying that everything is animated. So it it, it is the same sort of thing just conceptually we talk about it we reflect about it and then i think as a as an anthropologist you would be talking about practices of animism 
So those are the two distinct propositions that we're working with here. But um, it's really beautiful because you can actually reflect on animism with the philosophy that I do um, and, and try to sort it out in a way that can be understandable for a lot of people in their reality that, that they sort of embody. And I think this is where I would love to talk to you, Huna, about um, how do you see how do you see these two things meeting? And um, because this is how I see it meeting, I don't see them as distinct ideas in that way, you know. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think um, that uh, this is super interesting, dude. That you intro introduced me to uh, Peter Schuster, uh like. Uh, these guys who are working with, um, for instance, hallucinogenes, uh, psychedelic experience, they are certainly taking Occidental philosophy to new places. Mm. Um, I, I mean, for me, the as I've as I've been saying now, the most important thing is to move towards practice to get into and 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 in playful ways and uh and i think the 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 interesting thing the interesting question would be how can how is it possible to do that with something like philosophy which is so much in the in the in the conceptual space like I, I I remember I I mentioned to uh, Peter uh, at at our talk. Uh, just a little uh, point here to everybody: we had a chat, me, Nina, and a super interesting guy called Peter Schuster, who's also a panpsychist mm -hmm. philosopher. Anyway, so um, we had this chat, and I said that uh, I think one of the most important, uh, or one very important tenet in working with animist thinking is that it doesn't have to be consistent it can be contradictory <laughs> and and that that there can be contradictory propositions i think you can transfer this when you think about nordic mythology not only in the same not only in scandinavia as a whole not only in a country not only in the same con context but in the same ritual inside the same person there can be wildly contradictory ways of 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 talking about uh, or thinking about or not even thinking about enacting practicing a specific thing and if and yeah i'm and and and, and uh, yeah when i when i say this i feel i'm bringing something that is in a sense very diff different from the philosophical space so so how how do you think i mean can philosophers work with me on on the yule bug ritual can 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 they contribute to that for instance can they i don't know uh see do philosophy through that for instance so so like what what you're doing right now is philosophy like the reflection on a practice is philosophy. That's why I'm a philosopher. So um, uh, like I come from Eastern practice. That's kind of what got me into it. And my experiences, which were very much practice, ritual based, I started this whole journey because I had a I had an awakening, a spiritual awakening through psychedelic substances that that made me feel like I was a part of nature. So that's kind of the starting point. It was ritual practice that initiated mm. me into philosophy, which yeah. was 
which has been <laughs> like a now a 15, I don't know, 20 year sort of reflection period on that one experience mm. of eight hours of my life. You understand? So it's just, um, so in that sense, I think philosophy is really helpful. Otherwise, I don't think I would be able to integrate into this world without actually reflecting and talking about it. Mm. And that's the way we, I mean, that's that's modernity. You know, I'm not, I'm not getting up in the morning and I'm not out on my farm. I don't need to do that till the day, till, till night come and I fall asleep again. I have to reflect on what's going on. I have psychological issues mm. like everybody else on this planet because we're living in modernity. We, we're not always mm. just physically integrated with the world that we live in. Mm. Um, so in that sense, uh, this is the sort of the space for it. And what you're doing and what we are doing to, right now is philosophy. We are reflecting. It's mm. the love of wisdom. It's the love of knowledge. That's all it is. Mm. Nothing more and nothing less. And the way we are talking about it also, Peter and I, is not mm. so much about abstracting. It's about bringing mm. it back to the phenomenology of it. Mm. So we are looking at these experiences, seeing where we, you know, exceptional experiences, seeing where they, where they fit uh, in society, and then developing that into mm. a more sort of refined and beautiful way of grasping the practice. Mm. And that's what Buddhism has done with it, um, with its gyan, with this knowledge. That's what um, Indian religions have done as well. It's not about writing the books. It's about reflecting upon the practices. So this mm. is of Habamal, everything. This, this is all philosophy at the end, mm. you know? So I think that's where we are kind of combining. And without the reflection on it, it's not... I mean, in my experience, at least, it's it's very difficult to just mm. have the practice without really knowing what the practice is. Do you, of course. Do you know what I mean? Of course. And, it's, yeah, and yeah, the no, more and you refine also, it, and we're yeah. we're modern beings. I mean, that's yeah. the it's, problem. And it's not because us. I'm it's not because I'm criticizing the reflective part well i i have perhaps You're been doing, doing that it, a little so. bit now, but i also <laughs> i also realize the the uh i also realize the importance of it of course i mean i'm yeah. i'm doing it myself quite a lot um uh but uh let me just uh mention one other aspect then you say uh you, you uh when you say that we're modern beings and uh we're part of modernity and so it's a condition then like part of of my project, how I want to deal with the world, is based on the idea of counter-modernity, not non-modernity or pre-modernity or imagining that you can put on some Harry Potter costume from the Iron Age and then you 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 play that you're living in another age or something like that. But counter-modernity, we know we are full-born products of modernity, and we can we can de- we must deal with the problems of modernity from that position not like how would you how, how do you think or do you think that's possible from the perception of or from the position of panpsychism i think panpsychism is inherently anti-modernity because it's inherently anti-mechanistic viewed so like mechanism was you know um it, it basically cast it, okay, it'll, it starts from Descartes. Um, he's the first one who actually put it forth that, you know, mind and body are separate and um, and then spirit, spiritual life was separated from the everyday life. Um, and th- this has been the problem of modernity, that our lives have become separated in that sense. So um, 
this is what the whole sort of, it is a counter modernity mm. in that sense, because it's saying that we are not separate, we are one, mm. and it's anti-Christianity. It's also anti-science in the sense that science has been built upon this mechanistic view. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it is trying to count. That's why we say it's also like the philosophy of animism in that sense. Mm. So it's it's backing animism in a mm. way. Mm. It's 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 the metaphysics, it's the ontology, it's the ground, it's the structures. Mm. That's what mm. we're talking about, the structures of how you think, basically. Mm. So the groundwork is anti-modernity in that sense, um, in the way it is today. Um, it is very much going back into some kind of tribalism, but in and it's trying to also build some a new world, a new way of looking at things, but from the context of where we are, rather than trying to, um, you know, completely um, absolve us or like deny us, which is again a very Christian thinking that you 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 also live in the sort of denial that okay, no, we're going to say no modernity here. I, I don't want a denial. I want um, I, I want a, a absolute acceptance. And this is also, I think, where panpsychism is trying to, to say that we want an absolute acceptance of what is actually going on and not living in this sort of world of, like we talked about, Peter Thunberg and mm. all these activists. I mean, that I, come... just suppo I suppose if I can say one thing very briefly, I suppose just, just the fact that we have a word such as animism, uh, yeah. you know, just displays the, the, on, in full view that we are mo modern people. Because actual animists living in the jungle don't call themselves animists, right? Oh, I just had something brilliant to say, but now it was gone. <laughs> you <laughs> uh, Sorry, I mean, come back that, to it. Well, that's my whole say, life, um... I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Brilliant is on the tip of my tongue. Bro. Yeah, now I know what it was. <laughs> it was like the story, <laughs> the story that you were telling. Uh, of of um um <clears throat> panpsychism being uh inherently you call it anti-modern uh it could be probably kind of the same as counter-modern um counter or similar yeah. uh i remember that peter he talked about that when he took a panpsychist view of the history of philosophy then there were many more panpsychists than you would expect is that a lot of the actual philosophers that we know, they were actually panpsychists. He mentions yeah. Spinoza, but he also mentioned some other guys. Now, yeah. not a philosopher. However, now there's a guy who did research on European cultural history. He's called Wouter Hanegraaff. He wrote about esotericism and specific ways of understanding reality. We can call them animist in huge quotation marks, uh, have been rejected through European history. And that is all the kinds of stuff that we normally call esotericism. This mm. is pretty, to a pretty large extent, being rejected in a, in a retrospective creation of, of narrative. That a certain mm. narrative has been created late on European history in which there was this sort of... Uh, calm stoic rationalism where people were smoking pipes and being a little bit victorian armchair scholars and plato he was probably also that kind of thinker even though plato himself he says that he is possessed by something divine and he's foaming of his mouth and he's screaming in the streets and that's how he talks about philosophy right and uh, <clears throat> and so there's been and Plato was doing psychedelics as well, by the way. Yeah, Illusinian mysteries. So, right? no, so there's this sort yeah. of there's this sort of 
kind of rationalistic modern washing of entire history yes. where history yeah. the history of thinking the history of ideas becomes becomes this 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 uh rationalist process which is in in which has always which is never was in reality but but which in this mythology has always been in stark opposition to all the uga booga all the kabbalas and all the hermeticists yeah. who invoke the demons and all that stuff right now that opposition is not real and if even inside this the 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 space of myth, of philosophy itself that this idea is is in fact phony and that the the implementation of this in exterior uh, Descartes reality that you spoke about before is in fact a back projection of all of history, then one thing that you could do as a panpsychist philosopher is to reclaim the panpsychist uh, philosophy of European history with a new myth, right? The myth that we were always, that we were rationalists since Pythagoras, is that this is a myth it creates our relating to our history in a certain in a certain way that's what myths does in, in my view they create relation to something uh they create our capacity to relate to 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 something and mm. and this means that you could narrate with your knowledge you could narrate a myth that could enable our relating to our history of ideas in a way that would bring the uh panpsychist slash animist perspective back on the stage and not as something that's new or being brought back but something that was really there all the time but ignored hmm. that would and no. in my view that would actually be it sounds like a reflecting and also based on reflection but the narration of the myth is a practice when I, for yeah. instance, talk about the the, the Ragnarok and and uh, use, and, and we also did this together, Matthias, in, in the Danish newspaper, and where we connect the uh, the Scandinavian experience of climate change that might have inspired the myth of Ragnarok, and bring that into today and say this is a myth that can speak to us today because it reflects on climate change. Then we're doing we're partly doing a uh, a, a scholarly reflection on history and some specific pieces of mythology. But what we are also doing is that we are also talking mythology. We're speaking as a rhapsode or as a skald or whatever, and actually bringing a myth to the table that can enable people to relate again with the ca cataclysmic event, which is the uh, climate disaster and all that. Uh, Sorry, you're making some some really good points, and I I just want to uh, uh, kick something in that also relates to the debate that we had before uh, about the, you know where do these types of ideas like direct do they go in sort of like nationalistic directions or not and so on. Um, there's a, a wonderful uh, philosopher theologian. Um, uh, whatever you want to call him, uh, over on this continent, Vine Deloria, uh, who has uh, written several books uh, about Native American um, uh, worldview, uh, basically. He is Native American himself, of course. And uh, in his book, God is Red, uh, he, uh, he, he talks about the, um, a lot of things, of course, but uh, one of the things that he, he highlights is also that uh, uh, he talks about conservative Americans, nationalist Americans, white Americans, of course, in that sense. And he says, well, in a sense, they they uh, have caught on to something um, um, that is correct, that is uh, real, 
That is uh, similar to the Native American experience of the land here. Um, this desire to be associated with the land, to, be, to feel the land and to, to be part of it, right? Um, but then it's cast in this uh, bizarre uh, European nationalism instead of an actual experience of the world. That that's the main problem that we constantly see. We have so many uh, uh, really uh, good thinkers over here. And Rune, for instance, I've uh, uh, previously also um, suggested um, braiding sweetgrass by Robin Kimmerer uh, to you as another great example. Um, sorry, what? I've I've read read yeah. Yeah, and it's a, I, I really love uh, her her perspective on 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 so many of these things, and um, especially how she um, she juxtaposes the the biblical creation story of Eve uh, with uh, the Native American Sky Woman who, uh, uh, who 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 walks in a paradise, whereas Eve has been cast out of a paradise, and and her whole journey. How dare she? How dare she? Do? <laughs> Blasphemy. <laughs> the whole journey through Earth is basically uh, an attempt to come back to paradise, which means that nothing around you in your living life matters, right? It doesn't matter because the afterlife is the deal, right? That's the Christian perspective that we're dealing with, too. Um, uh, now, I, I wanted to kick those uh, 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 thinkers and their thoughts into this debate as well, because... Um, what do we see in a European context? Uh, we see uh, the uh, promotion of rationalism as, as a European way of thinking, European thought. Um, but then you also have a, a counter process of thinkers who basically claim irrationalism as, as a foundational element of European thought. And those are the ones who either are nationalists or get co-opted by nationalists, right? Yeah, uh, like Nietzsche. Nietzsche is an example. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there, there are plenty of Goethe uh, as a... As yeah. a Goethe. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, for sure. Um, author, right? Um, and what are they really about? Well, they're, they are about the experience of, of the land. Um, uh, many of these thinkers and, and writers, they, they highlight the need to live with and understand the land. And this is something that, you know, I, as a Northern European who, who has grown up in environments where the traditions uh, were close to the actual environment, right? Um, when I moved to the to the North American continent, uh, a lot of uh, white Americans over here they um, first of all envy our, those experiences that that we have had as Scandinavians, for instance, with like connections to the land. Um, and and in other ways, I also uh, realize what it takes to become connected to the land in different ways. And then I'm sure you have had similar experiences uh, of, of like how you connect with the land moving from one part of the world to another part of the world too. And I think it's, um, it's really important to, uh, um, uh, to, to keep in mind that rationalism and irrationalism in terms of connecting to the land and connecting to your world they need to come together, right? They need to actually coexist, otherwise it can't work. As long as you postulate that there is a difference between, uh, between these two modes of thought, which I don't think there is, 
speaking as a scholar and a religious person and uh, a crazy lunatic that fucks around in the woods and throws fake blood in his face. Um, <laughs> like, I don't think that there is much of a difference here. And that, and it, this is what I think panpsychism and animism as, as ways of relating to the world can bring forth in, in a further uh, human development of, of, of our understanding of, of our place in the world. Yeah. yeah. But that, that's also what I wanted to say about the fact that, you know, ph philosophy for me, I mean, of course, philosophy is many things, but philosophy for me, because I do ecological philosophy, because I do metaphysics, it's just about understanding the structures of reality. It's really, really that simple. And it's about knowledge and wisdom. How do I interrelate it together? How do I connect to the world? That's sim it's that simple. And going really deep into the thinking of it. And then it gets very complex, of course. And, and it's very contradictory. And I'm not following a sense of rationalism at all, actually. People get very annoyed by me. I'm, I'm, I'm always contradictory. And I think a lot of good thinkers have always been contradictory. And it's very important to be contradictory. Yeah. Because, you know, thoughts are not stagnant. They're not... Um, they're, they're an organic process and something that's true right now. You can't even imagine what I'm actually talking about when I'm saying it because the words may have a different meaning to you. It's subjective. So in that sense, it's at the end of it, it's just a lot of energy that we're playing with. So it's about trying to grab onto that energy rather than listening to just the words that are being said. And I think that's what we all are trying to do. Um, in whatever our own ways, we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to reach out into something that is that feels like home, that feels real, that feels can like we're connected to each other, like we're connected somehow because we're feeling so lost, and this is the problem. So we just want something to grasp onto, and and we tr we strive so hard to do that. And I think we're all just trying to do the same thing in that way, and it's beautiful. I think it's absolutely wonderful also to have the different. And to have the uh, contradictions and, and the distinctions <laughs> that we have, so yeah, and, and also coming from, sorry, go I, on. I, say, I think that's really interesting. You mentioned about the contradictions because it seems like it's such a, a negative thing to, or, or certainly a lot of people see it as such a negative thing to contradict yourself or to even change your mind. In in like the modern day, it's, people just think, mm. "Oh, you've changed your mind. How dare you?" It's like. Mm -hmm. Even when people, you know, with with like cancel quote unquote cancel culture, and people, somebody may say something ten years ago on their Twitter, and they're still held accountable for it today. And it's like people change, people change over over ten years. I mean, I was a fucking idiot two years ago before we started this podcast. The things <laughs> I thought then compared to now, it's yeah. it's everybody should be changing, adapting. Your opinions should always be be changing. And I think if anybody keeps the same opinions their whole entire lives, there's something seriously wrong there not because you're willing to to listen to other information and go oh you know what maybe i was wrong now maybe this is actually the direction i want to go in but it is just such a scene is so negative to be like you know what? i thought that then but now i'm going to change my mind and i wish more people were willing to accept that and just willing to be more understanding of it that you know people change where we we live in things and one minute we think one thing and a life experience like you said life experience might happen you might take psychedelics and come out with the other side and think something completely different going in mm. and it's okay to do that it's okay to change your mind it's not a bad thing we all you know we all do it and forgive people who do change their mind and be understanding of that totally. i also think that that like from just 
connecting a little bit to what Matthias is uh, saying. You're referring to uh, Deloria and uh, Kimura and these these uh, writers. I think that with the implementation of or sort of rise to power, not power, but but um, the rise of animism in in scholarly thinking. What's happening? What I see happening now is that that there's this wave of people who think along these lines, and it's all over the world. You have like the, like you are in one section of it, Nana. I'm a little bit in another, but there are uh, the people you know, Anna Ness, and uh, the other guy there that's uh, your supervisor, um, and. Uh, there is uh, Adebayo Komulafe from Nigeria, Robin Kimmerer, as you mentioned, uh, David Abram, Charles Eisenstein, Tyson Junker-Porter, a, a whole flurry of people who are inside indigenous scholarship who are bringing these things to the fore in many different ways and from their different positions and, and, and understandings. You know, the the uh, uh, animist anthropologist Eduardo Kuhn, he, uh, he took... Um, uh, ayahuasca with Amazonian shamans and communicated with uh, rainforest spirits directly in policy documents that they address to the UN agencies. <laughs> this is the time we live in. The the, uh, the kind of cutting-edge cultural research create communications between the UN and rainforest spirits. And uh, <laughs> and this is... Uh, and, and I think in, in many ways it's an, it's an amazing age that we are uh, that we're living in and bringing these sort of uh at least what what i feel i'm trying to do is bringing these perspectives into euro descendant heritage and spaces is just something that has in well i think it's it's it's, it's a bound to happen it's just bound to happen and the question is just how and how can the different pitfalls like pathologizing, sectarianism, Nazism, bad style traditionalisms and nationalism, romanticism, all the whole clusterfuck that's, you know, whiteness and, uh, and who we have become in, in modernity. How can all the pitfalls be navigated in order to, to bring voices like uh, Wine Deloria and, and uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer into, uh, and make them av available to contemporary Europeans? Um, and uh, yeah. I think it's probably making them mainstream as well. Because um, it's all right, I was talking about this, people who were interested in it. But before I did this podcast, I didn't even know what animism was. And I knew it was not something I ever thought about because I just came from a world where this, I mean, you know, I'm not from a scholarly background, quite clearly. And it's, I just came from a world where this wasn't even thought about, you know, I just got on with my job. I went to work as a plumber and I came home and that was that. It was, <laughs> it just never even crossed my mind. Um, and I was extremely pig-headed, I would say, about spirituality before I started doing all these episodes. And I'm sure so many people will probably like me and maybe change their minds because of these episodes. Because I was just, you know, if I didn't see it, if it wasn't there, then I didn't believe it. And that was my opinion. And that's how I was kind of brought up. And, I, and then, especially speaking with you, Rune, doing the episode on um, animism, that completely changed my mind. And I started to look at things and think of things and... I accept that I don't know everything and there is and be comfortable in not knowing everything and and understand that maybe there is a spiritual side to things and things that we don't know, don't understand. But it's how do you get that to the masses 
and the people who aren't going to necessarily listen to to this show or well like, so daniel there's something i want to say to that and this, this is this is really important um so uh, uh, so what we all are hopefully aware of is is that over the the last uh, couple of weeks month or so right um these uh cemeteries or what uh, burial sites or whatever you want to call them uh in relation to residential schools in canada and uh, have been popping up uh popping up like oh as if uh we didn't know that this shit was happening like uh <laughs> this is of course something that has been uh covered uh covered up by by the uh the churches running these institutions right um uh, but uh but what what were these institutions they were um they they were there to basically take um uh, quote the native out of the native right that 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 was the whole point of those residential schools now um this wow. is a particular problem and issue and a really big fucking trauma for indigenous peoples here on on the american continents um but this is also something that has been happening to the european populations in different ways the working class of europe has been in the same way uh molded and just think about that word molded for a second right it means that you take somebody's form and you change it completely that's violence right there that's that's um at the very least spiritual violence and um and this is something that has been been happening to to uh, your English ancestors too, Daniel. All those ways of thinking that were not acceptable to the uh, upper class in in a society, um, they have been uh, basically beaten out of you, um, mm. just like they have for for in, any other uh, in, you know peasant population in Europe, a working class population, whatever you want to call them. Or and in India, it's exactly the same thing. Exactly, and, and it's happening from brown people to brown people. It's a white brown white person thing. It, it's a modernity versus indigenous thing. Exactly, um, much more that I think. Yeah. I think yeah. I think totally lifestyle agree. has a lot to do with it as well. With like modern culture, it's it's so busy, it's so quick, it's so fast. You don't have even you know I'm I'm up in Yorkshire. It's not it's not like it's London, but even then I was. You know, every day I was up at half seven. I would go to work. I'd get home at half four. If I wanted to play rugby, I would have to be a rugby for six o'clock. Then I don't get home till half past eight. I eat. I go to sleep. That was you like three chance to sit down and think. Yeah, that's it. That's three days a week. But on the other days, I'm I'm working. If I'm working Saturday or Sunday, the the, the hustle and bustle of life and just having to survive and make the food to eat and and want. To, I guess you put a lot of things on these nice material possessions as well that you want, and. So you get caught up in this cycle of of just never taking a moment to sit and think about the bigger things, and it's not until you know I've grown the I've grown the business and I get a little bit more free time, or you know I get time when I'm carving that then I lose myself in my own mind and I can think about things deeper than just mm -hmm. shit. I've got to get this job done because I've got to get to the next one because my boss is chewing my ass because mm -hmm. he wants to make his extra money, and I think that's that's quite sad of how. That's how most people live. Most people don't get the opportunity to to do this. Mm -hmm. No, you're totally right. And this this is really this is by design. You know, this all of this is by design, right? If you if you make the majority of the population uh, run fast uh, all day long to just stay alive, right? Then it's also a, a 
much easier to control that mm -hmm. population, right? I, I think debates are so important. I don't think we do it enough. I think people shy away from it. And it's almost seen as negative. And yeah, it's, I think it so quickly goes into like people just shouting at each other and, and swearing and people lose their temper rather than just listening and speaking to each other. Um, but like I always get myself into debates and Sarah tells me off for it because I think she doesn't necessarily enjoy it the same way I do, but I enjoy that mental chess of trying to like figure out the way around what somebody says or, or counter argument. And I think it's, it's the way that I've learned a lot. And I think it's a way that other people hopefully would learn. Um, that's why I just love having these. It doesn't have to get into, Oh, fuck you. Oh, fuck you back. It doesn't have to get that way. You can both have a debate and then go, you know what? Maybe I understand you in the end. Maybe I don't, but, we can we're both you know we're both fine we just respect each other's opinions but it's also about taking uh, your subjectivity out of it and saying we're arguing for the idea or the, or the actual object of what is going on here rather than us being right or wrong and that you have to take your egoistical yeah. egotistical self out of it and and argue as it's like a dialectic like a dialogue between uh to to come to a better or a, or a, or a greater understanding of what's actually going on and then you can't not respect the people you're with. And if you really listen, that's when you're actually moving knowledge forward. And we just expanded ourselves by this mm -hmm. conversation. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, Thank you. It's actually listening and not just waiting for your turn to speak is, is what I think yeah. a lot of people need to learn. I, I heard that somewhere. I wish <laughs> I can't remember where, but it, it's a famous quote, I'm sure. <laughs> you just made it <laughs> mine mine I'm coining it <laughs> yeah you coin it <laughs> right thank you thank you very much let's quickly just do do some plugs I guess let, yeah. let people know you know where they can find you guys your your work um, Runa let, let's start with you Rune Yana and I can be found uh, on the handle Nordic Animism on a, a lot of different platforms. Check out YouTube, for instance, and also just try to Google the word, then you've got to find me. Nordic Animism. Thank you very much. <laughs> we'll also put some links to your videos in the show notes, especially the ones um, about the Raven Totem. I know you did, was it like a 45-minute video on that? Uh, actually, there's a little playlist, The uh, but the important, the important video, I think it's not more than 15 minutes or something. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll put that link in the in the show notes. Jonas, what about you? Well, I uh, I've actually uh, uh, hold off with this uh, this announcement to this to this program. I was going to come out with it earlier, but I thought I'd, I'd just uh, I'd wait till uh, till we're all sitting here. Uh, so the only the, the only real thing I have to plug right now, and I, like I said, that uh, the album is coming out next year. But there's also a really cool movie coming out next year. Which is called The Northman, which is coming out in April, which is by the amazing director Robert Eggers, and uh, I am uh, I am happy to to say here on the Nordic Mythology Podcast that I'm uh, both acting in that uh, film and I am uh, have written quite some songs and music for it and done some wow. consulting on it and 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 so on. So, uh, so that's the big one I have to plug the, the oh, Northman yeah. uh, with Robert Eggers. Fucking, uh... <laughs> I should have yeah, left no, you till last now, shouldn't I? What's that? <laughs> I should have left you till last. How's Nina going to compete with that? 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't think about that. No, I mean, <laughs> Nena, Nena has got some cool stuff as well, I'm sure. I mean, that's really cool. That must have been a really yeah, fun, I fun I, experience. I I'd make it an NMP uh, exclusive. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk, we'll, when, when we get closer to the album, you know, we can start talking about more in depth about what's, uh, what's happening with that movie. But um, sure. yeah, I'll, it's, I'll, I, also, it's, I'll also be happy to say that if, if you find any mispronunciations in Jonas's old Norse, it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Well, the thing is, yeah, take credit. The thing is, actually, it's kind of funny because uh, one of the people I was working with on some of the music is is from Iceland, and uh, you know, so so with, with the, 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 some of the sort of song material and so on that we had to do, which was in kind of you know, old Norse, but kind of, you know, Icelandic or whatever. I kind of always was very self-conscious that I was doing this Icelandic nor old Norse stuff with a very Danish twang, you know, <laughs> so like, uh, <laughs> and she was standing there going like, you know, whatever. Uh, it's perfect, you know, so uh yeah uh, i think that's an awesome idea we should make a culture out of it that old norse with a serious danish twang matthias how would it sound <laughs> that's a fucking last ulrich motherfucking uh thing going on. I, I will i will go full jetlander on you for that one <laughs> <laughs> okay so, um, so let's just try let me just recite one line from uh, Verlusbau. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So in the uh, sort of like uh, adapted Icelandic Old Norse, it's Jolspildek Allahelja Kindir, Meiriok Minni Mörgo Heimdallar. That's just the beginning, right? So in Jutlandic, Jolspildek Allahelja Kindir, Meiriok Minni Mörgo Heimdallar. <laughs> and in Copenhagen, Copenhagen you speak a lot, who got kindier? Oh, wonderful. Jonas, Mateus said you did a, a good impression of me anyway. That's what I want to hear. Cool, let's up. Just Chop, chop the layers off. Chop the hair off is the usual <laughs> one. Chop the hair off. Yeah. No, I, 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 I won't uh, presume. I'll have to practice. <laughs> no, because okay. you have, you because you have. I can, you, I can do Jon Snow, but that's not really you. You have a, you, you've got your own thing going on, right? I mean, yeah, it's just been. It's, it's like being beaten by blunt words. That's what it. That's what it's like being like. beaten by. Uh, say, say that again. It's like being beaten by blunt words. It's by, like being beaten by blunt words. <laughs> kind of. We're, we're getting there. I'll, I'll practice. I'll practice the next I just have a little question. Yeah. Did we just sit here, three guys and one woman, and then we presented ourselves, but then we just skipped by Nena? No, 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 no. No, no, no. Yeah, I don't like how it is. But, you know, it's cool. <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I promise I was coming back to you. So no, I want you. Really. Let, let people know where they can find you and anything you're doing. You can find me on my Instagram. What, yes. What's your Instagram? Okay. Yeah, uh, just Nena Ada. You can just find me on my Instagram. So yeah, there we, there we go. And then from there, I'll connect you to all the websites and things. Perfect. Like that, so. 
Matthias, you are just Matthias Nordvig. On Instagram and nowhere else. I have yeah. cut my Facebook. I'm done with that. You shit. have? Oh, wow, oh, congratulations. congratulations. The red Thank pill. You. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we'll, we'll get him back. <laughs> All right. So for anybody who wants to check out the memes, you can go to our Facebook group that we made. Uh, Naughty Mythology Podcast. I think we've got like nearly 400 members in there now. <laughs> you should collect uh, all those. Oh, I thought you were going to say you had 400 memes. Oh, no, no. We, we probably do have 400 <laughs> memes, to be honest. There's quite a few. Um, so you can find us also just on our Facebook page, Instagram, and our website, just Naughty Mythology Podcast. Um, uh, if you like the show, please leave as a five-star rating a positive review. If you um, really want to help the show, Patreon's obviously really good for us it, it helps us kind of employ more people so me and Mateus don't have to do the stuff we don't like doing um <laughs> and we have a bunch of different levels on everything from sort of five pound tier up to the 20 pound you get different access for each tier um everybody who supports us gets to watch the show live you get to join in the the live chat on here um ask your questions to the guests when they're on you also get to watch the vikings watch long show with me and Mateus after the the main show we're not going to do it this week because it's been such a long episode uh i need to go and eat <laughs> so yeah thank, thank you very much for for everybody joining us i think it's been it's been fun hopefully people make it all the way through the episode we hit some good topics um i'm gonna to have to go google what a few words mean after this <laughs> we should, you we should, should just have to like stop people and yell what the fuck does that mean some more yeah, yeah. it's important actually yes. yeah because oh. we don't realize sometimes that people no. don't get us so yeah that's why i'm here exactly yeah. thank yeah. you very much thank you guys thank you guys thank Thanks. you Thanks. see you around guys see you later